Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a place for comedians to learn more about how to create comedy. My name is Jason Farr. I will be your host. Let's do this. Have a fun episode for you. I am interviewing Theater 99 co-founder and improviser Greg Tavares, a great guy. Have you ever borrowed a book from somebody? And you weren't immediately able to get it back to him because you had a stack of other books to read first. Well, a friend of mine let me borrow the graphic novel Blankets, and I finally finished it, and it's great. It's by Craig Thompson. If you have never, never read it, please do. Uh, uh, I don't know why I say please. You can do what you want, and uh, it makes no difference to me if you do it or not. But um, I really, really was. Uh, profoundly impacted by reading that book. I mean, it it hit me. It brought me right back to college and some experiences I had then. And, oh, man, just love and what we experience in this world sometimes. It, uh, it, it makes you think. It makes you think deep thoughts. It's a good read. It's certainly a good read. Do you ever have experiences where uh, you're thinking back on them like, oh, gee, that happened? That was a thing that I got through. I think it's good to to remember those things that you got through. Because it lets you know how resilient you actually are. People say, what, what's the, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think, I think the terrible, tough situations we go through really just show us how strong we actually were to begin with. Really great talk in this episode. Greg Tavares is... Oh, he's a salt of the earth. He is a really, really good guy. Somebody, an improviser out of Atlanta, told me, I like Greg Tavares. He gets upset about the right things. And <laughs> that's just a very poignant thing to say in this day and age. I mean, how many times do you go online and hear people gripe about things that really just aren't a big deal? You don't see that from Greg Tavares. He is a guy with a big heart who uses it appropriately and with uh, wisdom and patience. Another thing, uh, I went to see him once, to get something from him once before a show when I went to Theater 99 uh, about a year and a half ago. And he uh, he was one of the f- a few people who was getting the theater ready for the show that was coming up. So there weren't many people in there. And they all were staff people and, and people who are part of Theater 99. And he was on his knees in front of a chair in the audience Uh, getting his hands dirty, cleaning and fixing a chair. Now listen, there are a lot of people who would have delegated that job. But Greg Tavares is a man with integrity who is going to do that dirty work himself. And that is a great thing. And you're going to hear a conversation with a guy with an incredible amount of integrity. Here it is, Greg Tavares. How's Charleston? Things going well there? 
It's wonderful. It really is. Um, I just spent my beach week with my family. I'm the kind of guy that lives in Charleston and actually vacations in Charleston as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the place where you can do that. Yeah. I mean, it's such a beautiful place. And I always, as much as I love Greenville, I have to give it to Charleston as being the best city in South Carolina, arguably the best city in the Southeast. I love it. Whenever I travel anywhere, and I, I mean, like I love, I mean, I love plenty of places in the United States. I love plenty of cities. Like Asheville is a great city. I love yeah. Asheville. Yeah, um, me too. But but there's there's a feeling I get when I come home. I can't explain it, Jason. It's just like it's a relief that I'm back here. Whenever <laughs> I go, I I can be going to New York to do something like to go see a show and and have an awesome time, or go to on vacation with my wife. But when we come back to Charleston, like driving, when you see the city, when you see the, you know, the church steeples, basically, you're just like, oh, oh, this feels so, it feels so good to be here. It really does. <laughs> I, uh, now where did you grow up? Are you originally from Charleston? I spent a couple, my dad was in the Navy. So we, I moved around, uh, you know, like the, like you do when you're a Navy brat. And, um, so I was here from like age six to age 12, which definitely put some roots in for me and has me, gives me all these nostalgic childlike memories of running around in the the woodsy swamps of charleston south carolina and <laughs> um you know like fishing with my grandfather at a certain creek in town that i go visit with my kids now so it's, it's kind of awesome but oh, we moved is. around a little bit i mean i spent the first six years of my life in hawaii and i really think that's a big part of who i am and and then i lived in rock hill south carolina so i'm very familiar with the upstate too that's right i i went to college there and there was uh a show that you did at Theater 99 where you referenced Cherry Road or something in, in a scene. Oh, yeah. I, I, I did my high school years in Rock Hill. And um, it, it's just, I think I'm real fish out of water in Rock Hill. I mean, the Rock Hill is just like a quintessential redneck upstate small town. You know what I mean? In the past 30, <laughs> past 30 years have not been kind to Rock Hill. You know, mm. I think I was there at the high watermark of, of Rock Hill. It's oh, really? Kind of, yeah, I mean, it's become kind of the title loan sto- store center oh. of the United States. Um, yeah, the nicest thing there might be Winthrop. Yeah, oh, Winthrop's great. Winth- <laughs> yeah. Winthrop's a little jewel. It doesn't even feel like Rock Hill. It feels no, like it a, doesn't. Well, like it a was, small college. When I went to Winthrop, it was the only place in Rock Hill where you could get MTV or anything like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I was there. I, was, I lived there when MTV came out, like literally it was started its broadcast. It was national news that Rock Hill blacked out uh, and uh, MTV. I mean, made like it was like Thank the goodness. one town. It was crazy, and that's a great indicator as to where where um, it was also real close to a place um, called PTL. Remember that with Jim Baker PTL? They had a little amusement park that was close to there. I mean, that was my era. Was like I said, like the the heyday of of um of the like Rock Hill was like a little bit of a. a Felt like a like a moving, shaking place back then in a very conservative Christian way. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you used your uh, knowledge from you know you're going back to high school to to help inform your improv scene. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really using yeah. using uh, your life and your knowledge to Im- inform the scene. That's true. That I, that's odd for me, actually. I, that's odd for me to pull from my real life because uh. that is not. I mean, like I don't consciously do that very often. Um, I actually, it's kind of like kryptonite to me to to like play in a real thing. Yeah, um, I can see that. It wakes me. It, that's the kind. Of, like I'm really trying in an improv scene. I'm really trying. 
I I use the word trance a little bit to describe mm-hmm. what I'm trying to enter into, like a like such a like a character mind, if you will. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I mean, what, but I also do a ton do a ton of short form, which I love doing. And so I, I don't really do that so much in short form because in short form you're very conscious of playing the short form game. So right. it's less that way for me. It's a little bit more like a um, with when I do short form, it's a little bit more like being a uh, a gymnast or like a sharpshooter. You know, I'm like you've got the these things you want to hit and have huge payoffs, which I love. So I'm a little bit less in the trance, if you will, when I'm doing short form games. Um, unless the game is like super scenic, I do it. We do, we do a lot of real scenic short form games. And so I can kind of like, I don't want to sound too esoteric, but like I'm, what I get hungry for in improv in any kind of scene work is for this thing I call the click where I just stop thinking, um, as an improviser and I just start having character thoughts. Um, so in that, so if I'm referencing my personal life, it's kind of, it can be, it can, sometimes it can jumpstart a character mind, but a lot of times it's me being totally conscious of doing an improv comedy scene, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's something from your book, the click, uh, yep. that you talk about in your book. I, um, I was wondering, did you started in theater before you got into improv? Is that, I mean, didn't you study theater? Yeah. First? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I did theater in high school. I, I started mostly doing mostly writing when I first started doing theater, like as a playwright. So I thought I was going to be a writer. So I wrote a couple of plays in high school, and we we direct I directed them and stuff, and that really really got its hooks into me. Um, but then I left high school. Not in, I didn't go to to college immediately. I took a year off and bought a motorcycle and traveled around the United States for a while as an 18 year old in 1986, 87, <laughs> uh, which was crazy. Um, but it was – I went to this – there's a huge theater festival called the Thespian – International Thespian Conference. You know, mm-hmm. thespians are like that high school uh, um, academic theater group. And I yeah. went to this convention when I was 18, and I had this one workshop, and it just it just really blew my mind about like, – imagine never feeling confident in anything and then having a moment – where you felt confident about something. That was when I, in this one workshop doing improv with this one guy who I don't even know his name, that experience blew my mind. Wow. It, it just made me go, I didn't even know I could feel that way about, and because in theater, like, you know, I mean, high school theater is full of a lot of, I mean, you're probably doing it because you're a, you're searching, basically. Yeah, you know? yeah, in high school, especially that age. I didn't belong to a clique. I, I, I didn't self-identify as a, athlete i didn't even i wasn't a cool kid i wasn't even like an alternative cool kid i was a, just didn't have i just had i did karate <laughs> okay <laughs> i did martial art and i wasn't a part of any club and so I, and then i and i was a writer so i was really on the outside yeah and then and that and i you know and then that moment when i was in that one workshop when i was 18 it that moment of feeling confident about something was just intoxicating and um, made me feel great. And then, you know, and then I went on and, and had my process. I did an undergraduate degree in acting. I have a master's degree in directing, both in theater. So yeah, so I've got a, real, a lot of academic background. I've, I've directed a ton of plays. I've acted in a bunch of plays, written a bunch of plays. And I don't really even put improvisation in a different, I don't like do improv differently than when I act in a play. Right. I don't, I don't, necessarily direct or teach improvisation differently than when I'm working with actors in a play. I'm just trying to create work that's worth watching. If I'm directing a play, I'm just trying to direct the play in a way that's fun and 
are good and entertaining and expresses the playwright's ideas. And if I'm doing a scene, I'm just trying to create something that's worth our time to watch or worth our time to do, you know? So it's yeah. not different for me. It's all acting. It's all theater, actually. Well, that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book, because I've had, since I was in high school and junior high even, all my theories and philosophies about how to approach acting. And your book was one of the books that I read that said, yeah, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, why don't I hear more people saying this? Um, right. And so when you were talking about that in your book, and then uh, when I've seen you perform, I see that. I see that theatrical side, and I do believe that improv is something that can be as entertaining and interesting to watch as a scripted play. But you have to act in it. You have to do, uh, as you wrote in your book, uh, there's a little thing called acting. Uh, <laughs> that's something uh, that makes it a little more interesting and gives it more layers to, to view. It gets almost no play in any training center um, and that, that teaches that, that seriously teaches improvisation. And, I, and that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's, I mean, I've had the opportunity to take a lot of classes from a lot of influential people. I've had an opportunity to teach a lot of classes. And I, even, I know why I kind of stay away from acting stuff when I teach beginners at least. Mm -hmm. um, it's because it's so hard. Yeah. You know, I, I studied acting for years and I'm still just practicing it and studying it. Acting is, is such a lifelong pursuit. You're not going to get any immediate payoff with, you're not, you're not going to take a seven week improv class and get much better at acting. Okay. Correct. You, yeah. you could get, you could go from not knowing anything about, you can, you can learn yes and in seven weeks, or at least that it's important to do. You can't master it, obviously, but but you can get to where you've never done an improv scene, and then you can do functional improv scenes in seven weeks. But you won't be you won't be a, an amazingly better actor in seven weeks unless you were just talented when you walked in the front door, right. which that class can't take any credit for. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so acting is a real. It, it's a. It's a. There's a. It's a slow curve of getting better year after year after year. I just try to now when I talk to my students, I, I even I don't even use kind of acting terms too much. I call it the buy-in. I'm like, we gotta have a buy-in at the top of a scene. We you need to buy in to what you're agreeing to. It's not right. just I always I, what I've been saying a lot lately is like that scene was in the genre of improv scene. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, yeah. And I'm like, I'm just audiences don't want to see scenes in the genre of improv scene unless they're really funny and then they'll watch them. But I don't know how to create funny scenes. I'm not good at consciously going, I want to create a funny scene. I'm decent at buying into given circumstances and I'm decent at playing characters that, uh, so basically now I just talk about the buy-in and mm -hmm. I have two rules of improvisation. I don't have an, a giant set of rules. My two rules are believe your world and agree to what your your scene partner gives you. You know, those are the only rules I have. Believe your world and agree to what the guy on stage with you gives you. And by that, by that, I really mean believe what they give you as well. Don't try to negotiate reality. But that's that's the end of my rule set. Believe your right. world, the other guy. And so, so for me, if you're buying in, and that's just kind of actor speak. If you're buying in, it's it's going to work because yeah. now we're watching you. In the same way we watch any scene, you know, and, and I also don't have any like expectation that a scene I create has to be funny. That usually just takes care of itself. Yeah. Um, but if you buy in, 
by definition, now you're doing a scene and now you really just need to sit back as an audience and watch to see what they create, you know? So it sounds like a good definition for what committing is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, what's weird is I, because I started as a writer and an actor and because of my, for all my first experiences on stage were about bringing a character to life or bringing a, or bringing a world into life, like making a world that is supposed to be make believe into some re- reality like the idea of committing, I, I'm like, I have to sometimes back up and remember that that's, that's a challenge for some people. And not that I'm great at it. I'm not even saying that I'm this great committer. I'm just saying that's what I'm trying to do. Like I, for, for years, yeah. for years, Brandy, my, my partner um, at Theater 89, who's like my biggest creative partner my whole life, um, she would look at me before we walked. Imagine you know, this lady and I have done thousands of shows together. So right. like a lot of improv is like, how do I relate this to something I did with Brandy? <laughs> um, so, um, so a lot for years, Brandy would look at me before I walked on stage and say, cause she's such an encouraging person. She's like, she said, Hey, have a great show or like, break, you know, have a, you know, let's have fun out there. And my response would always be, and almost like a, became a joke between us. For me, if someone says, let's have a good show, it puts this pressure on me. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh-huh. um, I'm like, oh, we're going to have the show that we're going to have. Okay. <laughs> um, let's, let's not freak it out, you know? Um, that's, that's my bullshit, you know? But, but she would say, have a good show. And I would look at her and go, and this is what I swear to God, I did this for a couple of years. She would say, have a good show. And I would go, I'm going to try to see the world through my character's eyes. That would be my, like, like that's my goal, okay? <laughs> you can have the goal of having a good show, but my characters don't know they're in a show, okay? Right, um, right. My characters are in, like, little rooms and bedrooms <laughs> and kitchens and at the car place, and they're not in a show to make people laugh. And I only do that because it doesn't, like, for some improvisers, like, they need to feel like they're doing a comedy show and it makes them better. You know, they need to know that they're going to go out there and they're going to entertain a group of people. And that helps them raise their game. And I, I haven't got any issues with that. I really have this kind of like my, my little mantra is always are the way. OK. And so my way, I go backstage before a show and I don't look at the audience. I treat it like like, like in, a, in theater, looking at the audience is bad luck, you know, uh-huh. seeing have a good show is bad luck. Oh, and, OK. So and, it's break a it's leg. Yeah. Break a leg. You don't say. You don't say good luck. Good luck's bad luck. You know, mm-hmm. no, saying have a good show. I'm wrong. It's not saying have a good show is not bad. Not bad luck. Saying good luck is bad luck. Right. Right. So I don't. I don't say I've got your back before a show. I say break a leg. You know. And I go uh-huh. backstage and I don't look at the audience because I'm about to do. Because it's it's all theater to me. To me, I, if I look at the audience before I walk on stage, they're going to be the thing that's most present in my brain. They're like. The idea that I'm doing a show for people, mm-hmm. but I'm what I'm trying to do for those little three to five minutes of each scene I'm creating, I'm trying to be like submerge myself at least in a shred of the reality of the scene, you know. And it's mm-hmm. effective for me to keep that to 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 keep all of my focus on stage. All yeah, I I like that approach. I'm. I mean, my background is not as enriched in theater as yours, but I was a theater minor and close enough to be a double major. And uh, so a lot of my training or or root uh, 
stage performance is out of theater. And when I started taking improv, I I started to have more of that approach of, well, I guess it was a little bit both because I was doing stand-up. Right. So that had affected me, and I'm performing improv on the same stage I have have been performing stand-up for years. So there is a little bit of that effect of, oh, they're not laughing. Oh, did I do something wrong or not good? I, you know, like that's what you have to do with stand-up, but it's not good for improv. I don't know if it's not good for improvisation. I think it's good for some people. Um, like I'll use Brandy as an example again. Brandy is a great, I mean, she's a gifted, gifted improviser. She is. She's so funny. She's hilarious. Yeah. And, and she's all, she can play both sides. She can completely see the world through her character's eyes, and she can be aware of the audience's connection to a scene. That oh, that improviser awareness doesn't undermine her ability to commit, commit to character. Yeah, it's a, it's like a it's like a supernatural ability. And um and what's 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 sad about him about using Brandy as an example <laughs> is like you can't teach people to do what Brandy does. No, you can't. You, there's a there like she's such a talented individual. So I so a lot of times I use her as an example in a class. But I'm like, hey, you know, it, <laughs> you either a, got that or you don't. But, yeah, I mean, like, you might have that, but that's just us being an archaeologist and, like, dusting off the stuff and finding <laughs> the stuff that's in there. Um, right. I have a lot of beliefs about talent versus technique um, mm-hmm. because I wasn't incredibly talented when I was younger. So I had to work for every single inch of mm-hmm. of competence and competence. I was not uh, – like, no one saw me on stage when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. No one – I was in my mid twenties before people were saying, "Oh, that guy's talented." You know what I mean? So, oh, interesting. Was, uh, yeah. So I've never been the one that like the bright kid or like the special one in the group. I've just been the guy that kept on working at his stuff until he got to be. You know, for me, it's all about um, building uh, little methods and techniques to give me the ability to, that other people just had when they came up. You know. Yeah, well, that's that's a good thing for people to hear, especially people who have seen you, because you are so you're fantastic on stage. And so I think for me, I know when I was starting out, you know, I wanted to be as I don't know, as powerful on stage, I'll say, as uh, Chris Farley or something like that. But you either have that or you don't. But I got a little discouraged when I realized, oh, I don't really have that. But to hear someone who's who's as strong on stage as you are say, you know, I wasn't at first. I worked at it. Uh, gives hope to people who are like, oh, I can I can put in the discipline, put in the hours to work at this and get better. Yeah, that that is the very fa- foundation of my belief about um, arts instruction. Mm-hmm. You know, about about what the role of training. Or education plays in an artist's life, um, you know, and like I really don't like talent is this magical thing, mm-hmm. and but technique is a choice we can make. We can we can try different techniques on. We can tr- like I, I've gone to and this is after I'm I'm 48 years old now. I've been improvising since I was 18. I'm 30 years in. After I was 20 years in, I went after I had a complete idea and view of improvisation i took all these intensives with other schools of thought mm-hmm. and and i did it purposefully because i wanted to i was i wanted i didn't want to like break myself down and learn a new way 
I wanted to go to each of these kind of luminaries in the field and see where I was aligned with them and see where they were perpendicular to me and learn what I could learn, build, build out parts of me that hadn't been built out yet. So I did a week with Keith Johnstone. I did a week at the annoyance. I did three levels of intensity at UCB, but this is, but I, and this is all 20 plus years in, wow. you know? Um, and what was amazing about that experience is I got to approach it the way I built myself up. I built myself up by, by trying on different techniques, trying on different methods, trying on different ways of creating scenes or games or whatever. And then what worked I kept and what didn't work I threw away. And then I built me and then I was like, well, you know, I kind of finished building me. I, like that, I'm a self-built improviser. I didn't go through any system to become who I am. But let me go into these other countries and see how they do it. And then I can see what feels good and see what feels, you know, awkward. And, you know, what's weird is the stuff that felt awkward was the stuff I was most interested in exploring. Because, like, for example, the annoyance. Like, the annoyance was really hard for me to do for a week, you know. Um, and, like, the big deal people were teaching, like um, – Susan Messing and uh, oh wow, and um, the There's guy with the book here, do you have Napier and Mark Sutton? So like all these big guys, and the f- and the focus on the individual was what I found was profoundly different from my mm. approach. Um, they have kind of, a, and I'm really not saying anything negative about them. I think they're amazing, both yeah. as artists and as teachers. Um, but they have kind of a me first philosophy, and I have kind of a we first philosophy so mm-hmm. guess what that's a great thing for me to go try on for a week because yeah. i got to be a me first improviser for a week and feel both the the pros and the cons of that approach and it had a huge impact on me coming back and being a little bit more me focused um and a little bit more dynamic in in my in my character work you know mm-hmm. it, like it, it helped me do that because i have like this we first mentality so sometimes i'm a little too uh different uh, i defer too much to what we're doing and that can make me a little weak on my person on my on my character you know what i mean so that was awesome it was like going to someone's church for a week after you had gone to had c- created your own belief system if you will so right it was awesome but you know um but all that's just technique stuff. Yeah, you know? and you're it's, always a student. Yeah, you're always a student. I, I, I um, I, I don't, I don't ever want to leave that role. I, I love the idea of being hungry to learn about this art form. That's what's oh, humble yeah. about this art form, you know. Yeah, that's what I, I think. In any, I think any good artist is always learning. Um, uh, there yep. is, uh, I've heard so many things where of people continuing to learn. I mean. Uh, Prince, who I'm going to talk about for forever, <laughs> but uh, Prince was always trying to learn new things, and he was always getting new styles and new instrumentations, and saying, "Oh, let me try that on." You know, right. you're hearing it in every album, and there's a lot of random stuff, and it's because he was a student as well as uh, someone who could teach. But uh, you know, he was he was always. I, th- I feel like artists are always interesting as long as they are growing, but the if we keep it in the music realm, if you look at an artist that you stop liking their music, it's probably because they kept doing the same thing over and over again. Right. Exactly. That's totally true. And I mean, really, it, it doesn't get any more advanced for me than being 
truly being focused on somebody else and then truly taking that into you and seeing what it means to you. Right. Like, that's that, that polarity of other and self. Mm-hmm. I get off on that. I get off on how you can change me. I can get, I get off on that in the scene. I get off of that. I, on I, when I'm talking about ideas, I get off on that. Um, it, in any kind of art that I'm, that I'm experience, experiencing, I just want to be like, I want to be like, open and absorb when I'm getting something and then I want to sensate that or or think and feel about that and go okay that makes me feel this way and that's kind of the very way I create improvisation and it's the way I listen to music and it's the way I <laughs> yeah, read books you know I love that I, I love that approach because whenever someone was a beginner improviser they would think that oh, okay, this person said that, instead of allowing it to change me, I am going to try to change it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that, it's that odd sort of approach to what anding is in Yes And, where it's, yes, there is a dinner table over there, and I've got the alien gun that only works on us. You know, what does that got to do with each other? Right. Oh, I, I was just teaching a class last night, which was wonderful. And they, I learn as much from them as I teach them. That's the truth. But, um, <laughs> but like, I, people just enter improv scenes cognitively. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, and I, you know, I watch a lot of movies. I watch a lot of TV shows. I read a lot of plays and I go see a lot of plays. Like, ultimately, those things are about feelings and meaning right. and cognition is only a part of a way it's the only, the only reason why thoughts are important in my work the way i feel about it is to get us to the feelings and the meaning of stuff exactly. so like if we're and, and that's just something that i see over and over again people are just they're just having a hard time getting out of the cognitive and i don't mean they're in their head i don't mean that um, I, that's a different thing. I mean, they are only thinking about what's going on on stage and they don't yeah. get to the feelings. I call and it I, the chess moves of improv where they're only yeah. thinking about what is the improv move that I should do right now. And they're not, as you were saying, allowing, uh, like absorbing what's happening and letting it affect them. Well, I mean, like I, that's a little different from what I'm saying. I get oh. what you're, what I'm saying is this is the character that they are creating that even as an, I'm not even as an improviser, you're like the chess game of improv. I get that. That's just like total improv. I'm creating a scene therefore, but mm-hmm. I'm talking about even the characters they create are thinky characters. Oh, I see. Um, and the way I describe it is this is they almost become the lawyer for their character's point of view. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Okay. You know, they're there to kind of tell you why their point of view is right. And I'm like, see, that's all cognitive. They're still having character thoughts, which is right. still one step in the right direction. Good. Okay? Yeah, absolutely. But they are, um, but these are like scenes about ideas, characters, ideas. And I'm like, okay, I got it. I understand that, that you wanted to paint that wall, that color. And I understand that you felt um, felt like they hijacked that decision in your new uh, living situation, like a new couple moving in together. Um, now that's been established. Those are the characters' thoughts. Mm-hmm. Now we've got to move on to what what the feelings about those thoughts are, because then we'll get to what this argument means. Really means, you know? yeah. 
And so, yeah, it's not so much the, the chess game, which I can see, which I would, I would just stop that and go, you're not buying in, right? Like, right, that's, yeah. that's pre-buy-in, okay? Right. I'm talking about post-buy-in, okay? Okay, you've bought in. There's a wall there. She's painting it blue. You wanted – she didn't ask you about the color. You feel like she's railroading you into the decoration choices of your house. And now you've spent two minutes telling her why blue is wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. Those are all thoughts, how does it feel that she didn't communicate to you about this? How does it feel? Uh, how does it feel like to you, other character, that he doesn't doesn't appreciate the fact that you're because in their point of view, in this imagine this scene that I'm only imagining and not talking about very much. In this scene, <laughs> uh, a new uh, a little cu- a new couple who just moved in together. The woman is t- taking all the initiative to decorate. She's taking the total pride in it. She's getting excited about it. But the guy, he thinks that he's she's just not checking in with him. Okay, and now that you can have a scene where they just talk about the, the, both of them being right. Those are thoughts, or they could go. The guy could say something like. I thought that when we moved in together that we would get closer. Uh, yeah. And and now I just feel like this is just the same way it was before because and, and that would be a feeling, right? Mhm. You know? And then bang, we've got this scene where they're revealing feelings. So that's right. really my path every single time. There was something that I heard McNapier say in an interview. I read it and he said that uh, now you're seeing a lot of improv by improvisers who were taught by improvisers. And so sometimes the acting isn't as strong, whereas before improvisers were taught by people who had done a lot of theater. Yeah, I think that it, like for in a center like Chicago or New York or L.A., that would be totally true. Um we are off over on the Galapagos Islands um, in Charleston. You know? right. Like Brandy calls it Australia. I call it the Galapagos Islands because we evolve differently than all the other beautiful animals on the planet. So our improv has evolved differently. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So we have this kind of um, different thing. Everybody who's ever – like the, almost no people that have come to Theater I-9 where I, where I work and teach um, – Ever ever came from a theatrical background. Right. They all came from other walks of life because Charleston is not an acting center in the United States. Um, you know, we have about sixty people in our company that are actively performing, and maybe fifteen, maybe twenty of them have any like serious acting background. Mm-hmm. The the majority of although Brandy and I both do, so they were non actors taught by actors. Um, right. So I, we have a, we always have a different experience than the mainstream of improvisation. You know, I, kn- I this was something I was wanting to talk to you about because I've I've noticed that the performers at Theater 99 have a level of of talent that I appreciate in improv. That that's what we were talking about at the beginning of acting in it and uh, just good theatrical choices and and acting choices that are happening in improv scenes. I'm wondering if that the fact that you and Brandy have a theater background, that's why people are giving that kind of performance because they were taught by you two. I mean, I like to think that basically um, it's just, I mean, we also, Brandy and I curate the company. So we're going to pick people that have that ability, you know, like, like that's, that's one of the things we like believing the world 
is if we, we don't have like a written matrix for what we're looking for in an improviser that we that goes from say training program to performance company mm-hmm. but one of the things that we talk about because brandy and i talk for hours about improvisers that we're interested in and then we have an audition process and one of the things that we always talk about both of us and the importance of it is do they buy into the world you know mm-hmm. um and sometimes an improviser well i mean rarely but like every sometimes the improviser can place too much importance on the scene being comedic. I mean, this is kind of like what everybody always says. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no, I'm not the enemy of funny. You know what I mean? But right. I do like, feel like sometimes that like everyone wants it to be comedically successful. I want to be comedically successful. I want my scenes to be comedically successful, but I want believing the world to be a big part of why they're funny. Right. And, um, and that's a, we just place an importance on that at theater 99. Um, and we try to talk about it in classes and mostly we just talk about it as an expectation. Like there are two ways to, to kind of approach what you want out of classes. You can get, you can say, here's a technique, here's an exercise that teaches a technique or a skill that gets you there. Or you can just say, okay, well, you know what? My expectation is that you're going to believe your world. My expectation is that when you pantomime, things are going to be consistent and when you drink, it's going to look like real drinking instead of like a robot drinking. Or if you're right. typing, yeah, there's like, thumb in their just, mouth. Yeah, yeah, you can just you can just say I have the expectation the work's going to be like that, and people will kind of gravitate towards what you expect. And then if you feel like you need to get skill based, you go okay, let's do let's do an hour on pantomiming table height. Let's do this. <laughs> Welcome right. to the next hour of your life where you have to be consistent <laughs> on, um, on counter heights, which I have done that hour in a class, not as a teacher, but as a student. And maybe that's why I am decent at maintaining counter height on the table that I'm pantomiming. I only say that kind of jokingly because that's a boring class, <laughs> you know? Well, right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's necessary, man. It's very necessary. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. You're never going to get a laugh. No one's ever going to laugh because your table's always the same damn height. Okay. <laughs> um, but if you get taught game of the scene, you might get some comedy payoff, but like, it's basically like these un these fundamentals that are, um, that don't have any immediate reward. You know, those are the ones that are atrophied that I see in in both training programs and students. Yes. And, and even in ours, like I don't have the table height consistency class. OK. <laughs> um, and uh, and you know, I just try as hard as I can to um, to give p- feedback that that is based on like, hey, I I didn't really believe your world because that table was at three different heights. I didn't really believe your world because. The way you were typing on a laptop seemed like a clown. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, the, and then nobody in that world referred to your weird clown-like typing. Right, which would – and many – some of the, the joke or the comedic-inspired theaters are like, hey, that's the weird you should have been pointing out. Right, or that's even the normal for our world. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, like if I'm tapping like a weird – like if I'm tapping like exaggeratedly on a keyboard – Right. I can do that in the real world. You know, there's mm-hmm. something in my life that could make me act like I'm typing in a weird way. Right. Um, we just have to accept that that's real in this world. And not ignore um, it. Yeah. And not act like that's real fucking typing. Okay. That's <laughs> not real typing. You know, like that's weird, crazy, exaggerated typing. But I, there are plenty of times in my life I have weird, crazy, exaggerated typed. But I usually had a reason for it. You right. Know? And then that reason would be interesting. And that reason would be my real character was exaggeratedly typing because 
he was so frustrated with having to send so many emails and he was having a moment where he was just like being a little cranky or something, you know? Right. I, don't- I, I agree. I mean, that's, I have the same philosophy that you have about it. I, I don't have anything against, I'm not an anti-comedy improviser. I certainly want things to be funny, but I think I get more personally out of performing improv in such a way that it has that richness that you're talking about, where it's not only funny. It's also a world that not only I'm believing in, but the audience is believing in. I like to see scenes where the improvisers are so good at working with invisible objects that it's like the objects are there for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got to that's be the expectation. Re- I recently expressed this in a conversation. I kind of came to an awareness. I said, I want to be like Paul Rudd. Okay. Mm-hmm. Paul Rudd is very, very funny. Yes. He's got total comedy credibility. Yeah. Okay. But he's also a really good actor. He is. And he also re- usually plays characters that are a lot like a real human being. Yeah. There's not a ton of what I would call comedic character exaggeration going on with Paul Rudd. Even an Anchorman. Even he, he almost. I mean, like I'm trying in my mind. I'm just a big fan. I'm not a crazy big fan, but like I was like, what am I? What do I mean by what I'm talking about with comedy? Who's an example? Who's an example? I'm like Paul Rudd. Yeah, he gets the comedy from being emotionally altered. Oh gosh, that's yeah. where the laughs come from. Yeah. And not just in romantic comedy. Obviously, he's got a ton of those examples. But even in other comedic vehicles that aren't rom-com, which where a lot of the comedy comes from emotionally being manipulated in romantic comedies, obviously, because it's romantic Mm -hmm. and it's about love and the same kind of formulatic stuff. But even when he's playing other comedic things, he's getting the comedy from being vulnerable to the outcome Mm -hmm. and the vulnerabilities being expressed through being emotionally altered by the situation, circumstance, or or his partner. Yeah, and he's a guy that's, who buys in. He buys in and gets the comedy from the buy-in. You know, it's not because he's seeing or doing funny things, although he says and does funny things. Right. So like that's my. So I'm more of like a, that's what I my I'm emulating. I'm trying to be a the Paul be a Paul Rudd, if you will. Right. Um, but there are plenty of of Farleys, and there are plenty of like like there are plenty of other improvisers that are great at, at playing big characters. You know. Right. And playing, or or being verbal in their comedic offers, or being or being able to play absurd worlds or premise, you know, Paul Rudd's not that to me. Paul Rudd is like, how do I buy in as hard as I can, and make the audience laugh through my buy-in? Right. That's 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 it. That that's how I feel about it. Like in a lot of the work that I see him do, even in ridiculous situations, doesn't he play Ant Man? Isn't that one of his characters? Yeah, but a lot of the reviews were pointing out how much heart was in Ant-Man. Right. I didn't see that movie, but I saw the Avengers movie where he played the cameo of Ant-Man. Right. And I was like, very, like this is a guy who can shrink. He's in a totally <laughs> ridiculous situation. And he's still doing that Paul Rudd thing yeah. where he's getting laughs from like being emotionally on the hook for the moment. Yeah. That's it, man. Yeah. Like, like really, it's as easy as be on the, be on the hook emotionally for the moment. And I'm once again remember my philosophy. Always are the way. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not saying get off the fucking ride you're on. Get on my ride. I'm right. just talking about my ride. My ride is get on the hook emotionally for what the moment means. And you get have on it. 
you have cultivated a culture that has this standard at Theater 99 by by casting the people who seem to get that. Yeah. And who are good at that. That's how you have that richness on stage, regardless of Theater 99 show. Yeah, well, that's what we want to see in the people that come through our training program. That's the people that we gravitate towards when we see their work. And that's what we're talking. I mean, I don't want to say like, that's what we're, that's our curriculum. You know what I mean? Um, right, like right. we, a lot of that, you know, a lot of that ability is really acting ability. And we've already mentioned the fact that that's hard to teach. It, yeah. Um, and, it is um, hard to teach in a six week thing. I've tried to do a couple of workshops myself to sort of kickstart a sort of thought process about acting in our right. improv. But um, I'm trying to, as a coach, figure out, and this has been something I've, ever since I became a coach, uh, something I've been trying to figure out that I want to pick your brain about. How do you coach to that standard? I mean, is it, is it, especially with acting as we're talking about, it, it's hard to, it's hard to teach the acting. And, I just, I just came up with a little, uh, like trick that I've just been talking about a lot recently. Um, it's a little, uh, it's a little fill in the blank. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, I feel blank. Let's say I feel happy because blank, uh, because, uh, uh, I got a new job. So I want blank. Um, so I really want to impress all my coworkers today with, with just how, you know, just how on the ball I am. And so I didn't start with the story or the idea for the scene or a plan. I just started with a feeling. I just mm -hmm. dropped into happy. Mm -hmm. but of course, emotions have reasons. So if you, my philosophy is that if you drop into an emotion, the reason why you feel that way will just kind of autofill. That's the word we use these days, autofill. We're looking for the autofill for the scene, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I feel happy because I got a new job, and so I want to impress everybody with being on the ball. And so, bang, I have entered character mind, right? So if I'm at the top of a scene, one, I'm not being planny because I didn't start with I want to do this, which is a plan. I just start with an emotion, and I let that emotion lead me to my reason and then to my want. And now I can start that scene with that idea, you know, with that with that feeling and that reason and that desire, that objective. That's actor speak, right? Mm -hmm. And then I just start the scene. The scene might not be about me being in an office and be me being a new hire. That's how improv rolls out sometimes. Mm -hmm. If I come out with my my perky mentality and I'm moving things around, my uh, my scene partner might be the one that says something first. You know what I mean? And they might they pull me over to another reality. I could, but I can still use my the deal I've created. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The key is I went from being an improviser worried about what the scene's going to be about to a character having feelings and thoughts and wants, you know? Right. So it gets into being, uh, they're acting immediately. And I've been, you know, I think it, I've just been using that little, I don't know, a syllogism or whatever, that little fill in the blank sec sentence. I feel blank because blank. So I blank, but you have to, it's a sequential discovery. It's not, you don't know it all at once. Right, absolutely. And that's, I wonder if there are a, uh, one of the most common obstacles for improvisers is not wanting to be vulnerable enough to be affected. You know, they could, they'll, they're very happy. I feel like every improviser I see is very happy to say, uh, I feel blank. So that's the scene. I feel blank. 
but they don't say they don't it takes a lot to get them to go to the so i want this it does i i call that um i mean i, I see that mostly in men frankly um mm-hmm. a man I, I use the phrase atrophied emotional instrument <laughs> um um, you know, like especially in men, and and frankly, it's a lot of men that come do improv have an atrophied emotional instrument because they're like the class clown, right? And they have defended themselves from emotions with humor their whole life, you know. Right. So the 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 long term benefit for doing improvisation for them will be cultivating an emotional instrument, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think you gotta, you know, we that do it together. Just need to keep, you know, I guess, I mean, here, put it this way. People only do things if they see it's going to make them succeed. You know, they don't mm-hmm. do things because they're supposed to or to be a good person. So the key to the whole thing is them seeing scene work and shows and that just destroy using these techniques. That's it. They right. need to see people that they want to be like that are doing this. Right. And um, a lot of people are coming in, you know, like with a life of watching Saturday Night Live or a life of watching stand-up comedy or you know, these awesome things. I'm not saying anything bad about those things. I'm just saying like coming at it and they're not with they, they, they don't, they don't have the Paul Rudd of, they haven't figured that part out yet. And right. you know what? They're all, they can, they could be awesome without using this stuff. You right. know, it, plenty of people can be like a verbal wit, if you will. That's just like great at like, Verbally, like Timmy Finch, who's one of the founding members of Theater A9, one of the members of the Have Nots, is a great verbal wit player. He is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets, and he, like, you see that guy perform, and you would go, like, wow, I want to be like that. And he's just smart, and he can put the words out of his mouth. Right. I, 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 have no, I can't do that. I can't do it. I can't teach people to do it. Um, Timmy was that way the day before he started doing improvisation. You know what I mean, but I'm I'm noticing a lot of similarities between when you're talking about the type of improv that you're doing with someone who is advanced at the type of improv you're doing versus, or not even versus, but also someone who's advanced at a UCB style or an IO style. I'm noticing a lot of similarities. So I feel like regardless of what style or technique works best for you or, or particular theater's mindset works best for you, you can still share these similarities that create good scenes. I totally agree. I mean, I think the, I think believing your world and saying yes to your partner and believing to them, I think if you do that, you will be advanced. Mm. You know? Yeah, like I, absolutely. I think that is like the definition of being advanced, believing your world, because it's it's very yes andy to believe your world. You know right. what I mean? If 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 I say the line, "Oh Carl, it's just so hot here on the on the patio," and you just totally buy into being Carl, being on a patio and it being hot, and then you say anything <laughs> at all, mm-hmm. it's going to be a yes and move, right? Right. And if I totally buy into you being Carl, me being on a patio and it being really hot, Anything I say is going to be kind of, at least in the first minute of the scene, interesting. It's going to be buildy. It's going to be collaborative. I mean, it's going to work in that first minute of like building a world. Right. And if we truly build a world and collaborate in the building of it and both buy in, then something interesting will happen between those two characters. That's the theory. The theory is that watching human beings interact is worthwhile, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, the cool thing about coming from theater 
is we add this extra thing to watching real human behavior. We want it to be compelling as well, you know? Right. Not, not enough to just buy in. It's not enough just to agree. We want it to be on some level compelling to watch. And, you know, in comedy we would say we, we also want it to be funny, but I don't put that on it. I'm like, I want it to be just compelling to watch. But I just believe that, you know, as long as we keep digging into what we're dealing with, and those are all kind of like believe your world terms, we will find something compelling between these two characters, these five characters, these three characters. Right. I believe, and and my and my belief in that is not is born is completely born of experience. My belief in that is that I've seen it and done it so many times. Like, mm-hmm. look, wow, we kept looking and we found this interesting thing. It's when that. You know, every once in a while, I'll be in a completely bought-in scene and nothing will happen. I mean, that's just that does happen. Right. But, but just that's just not doesn't happen very often. You know, right. Most times, something interesting pops out and we play with it, and it's fun to play with. You know. Right. It sounds to me like to get to that level of improv, regardless of what school of thought you come through, it just comes from practicing that technique and continuing to be a student. Yeah, I mean, I see people like. I think the UCB is a game changer for your improvisation yeah. because they do not adhere to this idea at all. Although I, I'm, they're not anti believe your No, they're, they're not. Yeah, they just are focused more on the game of the scene. And characters never have that thought, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, characters never say the words, if that's true, what else is true. Right. They can't because they're not aware that they're in a game. Right, they're just thinking, this is what's just, true. Yeah, they, they, they never, characters, literally, unless the character is an improv actor in an improv scene, like like if it's a husband-wife talking about where they want to go to have dinner and this funny thing has happened, they never think, how do I pattern this funny thing into a comedic scene? They just don't. <laughs> it's impossible. They think, no, honey, I really don't want to have Chinese, but you keep on bringing it up. It's absurd, okay? <laughs> honey, li- literally, it's absurd. You like you, I've said no to Chinese. You've you've used every every simile for Chinese, okay? <laughs> like I'm not like my character's just pissed at his wife, okay? <laughs> right. And and thinks she's like, are, are are you really? Are you fool? Are you fucking with me right now, honey? <laughs> really? Why do you? I said no to Chinese. Why are you and, and the audience is laughing? They think we're playing a game, and they think my character. Maybe they think my character is going. If that's true, what else is true? No, I'm not. I'm just questioning whether my wife and I are on the same page right now. <laughs> right. They don't, and so that and and it's not that I can't think if that's true. What else is true? It's just not. It just it's just not the way I have the most fun on stage. Right. Or the success on stage which you might as well say this is the same thing for me because for me killing it just destroying the scene is what's fun for me um but i but i've seen enough ucb shows because they come to our theater all the time to watch masters of that technique oh gosh destroy. they destroy yeah they practice i think really intently uh they just oh, yeah. like they focus a lot and work real hard you know what i think is hilarious um is that their mantra is don't think. But let me tell you, if that's true, what else is true is it's the most thinking, thinky yeah. way to approach improvisation in the world. There's this, it, yeah, there's this it, nuanced way of approaching Their mantra that. should be think harder. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't mean that as a fuck you to them at all. Oh, I no, love, I know. 
I just mean like you look at them on the back line. This is this is my impersonation of a UCB player on the back line. Yeah, no, <laughs> head down, finger under the nose, oh, the thinking my, man. They yeah. are filling out that form, man, and then they come out and knock yeah, it out. They knock you it know? right out of the park, um, yeah. But there are UCB players that do that and believe their world, and it's magic. It's magic. Yeah. You know, yeah. like Bobby Ann or um, Shannon O'Neill. I mean, just – I mean, all of them. All of those, like – people that are the luminaries in that mm-hmm. tribe, they have married up the believe the world with that gameplay. They, they have this ability to, to truly be improviser mind and truly be character mind simultaneously. I just don't have that. Um, I cannot be, I can't have full presence in my improviser mind. If that's true, what else is true and be fully present in my make believe world. Right. I have to, trance or click into character thoughts and that's my acting background you know right absolutely i I think it is a a to each their own sort of thing and i i really admire the ucb approach and whenever i see ucb teams i just saw a couple uh when i was up in richmond and they were amazing and i'm always just awed when i see them but i am not particularly good at that style Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm okay at it. You know, what I mean, I took three levels of them because I because I wanted to. I I do. I don't like to see things from the outside. It feels kind of judgy for, mm-hmm. on my part. So I'm like, let me go over there and do that for a while. Mm-hmm. And when I took those levels, I loved it. Lennon Parham was my level one teacher, um, and she was maybe the most, probably my happiest, most joyful classes I've ever taken in my life as an improviser where Lennon's classes at my level one at UCB. And I took that, like I said, 30 plus years into doing improvisation and Mm -hmm. it was a level one, you know, Mm -hmm. and I asked them if I could jump up a level and they were like, no, no, take a level one for real. And I, and I appreciated that adherence to their, like, look, our philosophy is different. Come here and start from the top. And this is not, and I know them. They're like, like I said, they're friends, but, Mm -hmm. um, her class was wonderful. And, so like so perfect for like wow, I, I just appreciated everything that she she was so encouraging and so uh, and placed the focus on the stuff we all had so much fun um it was great so yeah, um great. It, and and that like i got to see it from the inside at least a couple levels and then and i i have a show that i do at theater 89 that is a game of the scene show that i really love doing it's just i'm doing it to challenge myself right you know, I'm not doing it to do the best work that I can do. I'm doing it to do that thing that we were talking about earlier. Never stop learning. Right, yeah. right. Well, I think that's a good area to end the interview. Usually at the end of the episode, I uh, try to create something with the guest. Um, it's been, I've done a joke with a couple people. Uh, Kayla Milady taught me how to beatbox. Jill Bernard and I came up with a curriculum if I were going to do a uh, workshop or 101 what's something we could do together quickly here um let's let's do let's do something i do with my kids okay okay um i do something called a jack and jill story with my kids okay um so i sing a song with the jack and the jack and jill went up the hill thing mm-hmm. it's not the song you're supposed to sing with it it's a song that i made up um so what happened is i'll start i'll sing the jack and jill's top of that story and then you sing 
the second next thing that happens to Jack and Jill, and then I sing the next part of it. And you can sing it in the little rhythm that we do, okay? So okay. it's going to be really, really embarrassing for me because singing just so happens to be like my crap tonight. It, it's, <laughs> it's so hard for me, but I'm yeah, going to try. I'm not good to do it okay so here's my song that i do with my kids all the time jack and jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water jack fell down and broke his crown and jill came tumbling after and then jack said what are you doing on the ground jill (laughs) why don't you help i'm laying here get off of your buttocks and then Jill said, hey, look over there. There's the giant train. Let's hop on the train and go back up the hill and get that pail of water. And then they jumped up on the train and then they saw some old prospectors. <laughs> they said, hey, this is our train. We have weapons here. <laughs> And then the prospectors, they brandished their pickaxes, and Jack and Jill were like, what the heck? Yeah, they took their pail, and they threw it at them, and hit them in the face. And then Jack and Jill were on the run from the prospector police. Then they had to get back to town so they could not be captured I think that's a great place to end. My, that is just like how it goes with my kids. <laughs> I love that we did that. That was a lot of fun. Awesome, my friend. Hey, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks so much for doing it. And come see us at Theater 89. Anybody who's listening, and you too, James. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I'd love to come. I'll see you soon. Take care, my friend. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I had having that conversation. Greg is such a great person to learn from. He is uh, hes really inspirational. I think that whole idea of going to different schools of thought and trying them on and, and learning from that and trying to get better than that is really admirable. I think that is fantastic. I want to start doing stuff like that. I want to, I want to learn and grow. I guess I am doing stuff like that. It's the whole reason why I started this podcast. <laughs> so great to have Greg on. Greg wrote a wonderful book called Improv for Everyone. I think it's a must read for anyone who wants to do improv. I can't stress that enough. To me, if you want to do improv, it doesn't make sense to not read this book. What I like about it is that it takes the fundamentals and integrity of advanced improv and breaks it down in a way that is easy for anyone to follow and learn how to do themselves. Buy it, improv people. It's a very, very good read. You can find it on Amazon.com. For info on Theater 99, go to Theater99.com. That's theater with an R-E. Today's episode was sponsored in part by the support of wonderful people like Chris Chandler and Holly Julian. Thank you so much for your support. If anyone else would like to support the podcast, you can at thereitispod.com. You can donate one time or monthly. Just scroll down, click on donate. May you all have their-itis. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes. Follow the podcast at There It Is Pod. Please like us on Facebook as well. There it is, another episode of There It Is next week. Please join us. I have UCB great Lindsay Calloran. Until next time, please, please, please be good to each other.
The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.